If you have your Bible today, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I want to just uh, read something very briefly. I saw, Jane, uh, I saw Laura come in. Do we have a baby here today, Laura? Uh, Matt and Nicole Isles had a baby Monday, Tuesday. Oh, that's right. She, oh, in her own time, yeah. Parker, Parker Daniel Isles, 5 pounds, 14 ounces, 17 inches long, three and a half weeks early but healthy and doing great. Uh, some pretty gra- uh, proud great-grandparents, Ralph and Rosemary Herrick, uh, Dan and Linda Isles are, gra- are grandparents, and James and Laura Merrick are grandparents as well. We're excited and we're, we're pleased and we're thrilled for them. Also, uh, I got a note, and I don't r- normally read thank yous, but I need to take just a minute and read this. Thank you to my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Crosspoint, your faithfulness to God, your love for others, your kindness. For all these, I'm grateful. I'm thankful, full, I'm thankful to be part of your family and for all you've done for us. And then inside, there are about 14 families who have signed. It's from the Mian Church. Every Sunday morning, we have a, a Korean church that, that rents a space here. The Mian Church is part of this church. The Chinese uh, believers who are with us as well. We're an international church. And every now and then, somebody writes a thank you. And it, the, the note was just incredible. Um, just a thank you for all that you do to be a part of the Mian Church and how excited they are to be a part of what's going on here at Crosspoint. So we just praise the Lord for all of that. We're looking at a new series called The Grace Story. And it, it, we're, we're talking about different aspects of grace. In the Old Testament, we always believed that it was all about the law. And the Bible is not, does not present it that way. In fact, just the opposite. The Bible presents grace coming in on day one in creation, as we saw two weeks ago. And, and we're looking at this week by week and seeing what has happened. Or, or last week is actually when we looked at it in creation. And, and we're looking week by week at, at how grace enters into all of what God has done with us. Today we're looking at uh, cleaning up my mess. Have you ever made just a horrendous mess? Have you ever made one of those messes you thought, oh my goodness. Uh, Last summer I was painting, uh, I had to redo some of the patio structure that we had. Uh, I didn't really have to, it was just a matter of whether it was going to stand up or not. That was the only difference. Uh, uh, The whole top of it was rotted out, and so I took it out and put new wood in there. And when you put new wood in redding, what do you have to do? You have to paint. And I'd done a really pretty decent job. I'm not the greatest of painters, but I was pretty proud of what I'd done until I had about, oh, two-thirds of a gallon sitting up on a ladder, and I backed into the ladder. And the the ladder, it it was like slow motion. You ever see one of those slow motion things where you see it going, and you're thinking, if I can just reach that can, and I I made this valiant leap, and I I was that close. I wasn't even close. I, I wasn't even the there wasn't any chance of me getting it. And I had a drop cloth down, and it got about, oh, about maybe a cup full of the paint. The rest of it went all over the, the concrete, and I was trying to wash it down and trying to get it down. So I came into Kathy, and I said, Kathy, uh, can we just get one of those indoor-outdoor carpets, put it on the patio, and we'll sell the place. It's easier, <laughs> easier than my other option. You, you, have you ever had a mess like that? You know what I'm talking about? When I was a teenager, uh, I was living in uh, Kansas City, or when I was a, a child, actually, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, I think. My father was on the board of uh, the Gospel Missionary Union in Smithville, just north of Kansas City. And uh, my dad got a call, and the flood from the Missouri River and some of the tributaries had gotten into Smithville. And they said, could you bring some labor over? Now, when my dad heard labor, he had five sons. Guess what he immediately thought? We were there. And so we came with a bucket and a couple of sponges and a mop. 
And we thought, you know, we'll help because there was a flood. When we got there, we realized that the high water had hit 15 feet up the walls of the Gospel Missionary Union in a two-story building. Have you ever seen dead fish on a second floor? The smell was horrendous. The, all of the paperwork for all the missionaries worldwide that they were supporting, because this was pre-computer days, it was all ruined. And we were trying to go through and salvage what we could so we could have records of who had been given what, uh, what monies had been handed out. We, were, we had to take all the sheetrock out. We had to strip it. In fact, we had to take the siding on the outside off because it, was, uh, it, was, it smelled so bad. So when we were all done with it, all you could, you could see through from outside for, all the way through the whole thing because all the walls were gone. But when we arrived that morning, I'll never forget with the buckets, my dad got out of the car and one of the few times my dad, my dad was always one of these positive guys, you know, let's just get in there. And I'll never forget the words out of his mouth were these, where do you start in a mess like this? You know the feeling. You've seen the pictures of Hurricane Katrina coming through New Orleans. You've seen the pictures of the earthquake in Haiti. And the, the, I think some of the rescue workers who get there, the first thought is, where do we start? And when we're looking at the mess that we can create, it's nothing compared to the greatest mess that's ever been made. It was not made by a typhoon or an earthquake or, or a tornado or a hurricane or anything else. It was made by sin. The greatest mess ever was when the sin came in. Sin marred the original creation. It was the biggest mess. And what did the Lord do? In Genesis 15, we have a verse. It's not what we expect. Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In the middle of this mess, this little verse is tucked away, and it's really the basis of so much of the New Testament because it's quoted four different times in four different venues in four different ways. But people keep coming back to this. Abram, the father of Israel, the father of the chosen nation, it all came back and God said, I'm going to start cleaning up the mess. And God's cleanup plan, here's where I'm going with this. God's cleanup plan for sin is not what we expected. It's never what we expected, but it makes sense. And it's driven and powered by grace. By grace. How does one clean up the mess? That's, that's the first question we're going to ask out of Genesis chapter 15. If you look in your bulletin, there's an, an outline that you might want to follow along. It might keep you awake. Probably not. It doesn't keep me awake, but, but you can try it anyway. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Here's the story. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. By the way, that's the first time that phrase is used, do not be afraid. It's used 365 times in the Bible, and you've just seen the first use of do not be afraid or fear not. It'll be used over and over and over again. Someone has said there's 365 times where it says don't be afraid because we're afraid every day of the year. I like that, except leap year. I, I don't know where that falls. Do not be afraid, Abram. Uh, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. I need to stop there for just a second. Ten years before this incident, God has come to Abram and he says, leave your family, leave everybody you love, and I'm going to take you to this other place. He didn't say where he's going to take him. He just said, follow me. And Abram went with, Abram went with God. And when Abram got there, he expected because God said to him, I'm going to give you children. And ten years have passed, and he still doesn't have a child. And he says, Lord, it's been ten years. The only one I have is this servant. This guy is a really trusted servant. And, and, and is this the one? Look at verse 3. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. 
And then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Abram's 85. His wife is uh, 74 or 75. Great time to start a family, right? Verse 5, he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring, your descendants, be. Then the, the verse we've already seen, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. How does one clean up a mess? If, if you're going to go about cleaning up this sin mess, how would you start? Well, God started in a place that we would normally, when we're looking at, at a mess, you, number one, evaluate the problem. You evaluate the problem. We, we jump from creation in Genesis 1 through 3, and, and, and we've come to Abram. But we need to know what happened in the interim. Between Genesis 3 and Genesis 15, life was spiraling downward. Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous when Abel brought this sacrifice. You see, Adam and Eve saw that there was a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. That was what was required. God killed an animal, it appears, to, to give them the skins for clothing. And, and when he saw that Abel brought the same kind of sacrifice, Cain brought another one. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and there was jealousy, and there was a first murder. Men tried to build a tower to heaven. God confused their language. All of the different languages that we have are because that we were trying to, to earn our way, try to get to God, and God says, that's not going to get it. And the sin unleashed was unthinkable. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, look at what it says in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil at the, all the time. This next line, just the next sentence just blows me away. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. God who made us, God who made us perfect, God saw what was going to happen. He knew that sin would enter, and yet God, the very God who knew all of that, his heart was filled with pain, and he got to the point where he says, listen, this is incredibly bad. He's evaluating the problem. And when things get really bad, we have a common solution, don't we? We just quit and start over. Uh, think of extreme makeover. An extreme makeover, you know, Ty and all the guys, they go out to somebody's house and they see this house that's falling down and it's rotted and it's nasty and it's horrible. And usually the people have some deserving thing going on, not necessarily enough that they're going to get a mansion, but that's what they're going to get. And so Ty uh, comes in with all of his crew and he says, this is what we're going to do. And do you know what they do first? They always have this big TV production and they blow up the house or they knock the house over or they do something crazy. They have cartoon characters come in with sledgehammers. I think that's just wrong, you know. But they'd come in and they'd tear this house down, and that's what we normally do. When we get so to a point where the mess is too big, we just think, let's just start all over. And I think the flood, the worldwide flood, was God's illustration to us that that's not what we needed. God sends this worldwide flood. Noah and his family are the only ones that survived. Noah preaches for 120 years, and he has no takers. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm a pastor. I, you know, I, I get discouraged sometimes when I don't see the, the growth that I think that we should see in the church. I get discouraged sometimes. I can't imagine going 120 years and somebody says to him, well, Noah, how's the church going? And he says, well, I got my wife and my kids on board. And he says, well, what about everybody else? You've built this huge, big thing here. And, and Noah says, well, we're just going to fill it with animals. And the people are saying, no, oh, that's a really good plan, Noah. And the flood comes and all the people die. 
And how well did that work? Noah comes out, he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk, first thing. God shows us that just starting over is not what we need. He evaluates the problem. We need personal, lasting transformation. We need grace. Folks, let me explain something to you. There's there's this view today of the church that says the church doesn't have the answer to the problem. There's a view today of the church in America that says the church is not what we need because it's not helping us. They're evaluating it, and they're saying the church has missed it. Why are they saying that? I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a legalism within the church. You have to keep these rules. If you do this list of things, if you'll, if you'll live by this set of rules, then you'll be good enough for God. And that's not what the Bible says, but that's what the churches have said. And the fact is, as churches, if we believe in the same God, if we have one Lord and Savior and one faith and one baptism, we ought to be able to get together with other believers. And we struggle with that a little bit, don't we? Does the world know that? Mark Twain was one of the greatest critics of the church, even in his time. He used to tell a story. Mark Twain used to say that he, he one time put a dog and a cat in a big kennel, big kennel cage, huge cage, and he put them together as an experiment to see if they could get along. And, and after a few days, the dog and the cat learned to live together in this big kennel. And so he added into the kennel a bird and then a pig and then a goat. He put all of them, all five of them, the, the cat and the dog and the bird and the, and the pig and the goat, and they were all five of them in there. And, man, the first few days, the, you know, the bird was really struggling with it and the goat was really struggling with it. But after a period of time, they began to get along pretty good. And so then it, he... Mark Twain says, then he got a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Catholic and put them in with the goat and the pig and and all the other animals. And he says within a couple of days there was nothing living in the whole pen. And that's the way the church looks at us. They say, you can't get along. There's no grace. And God says we need to understand that there is a problem, and it's not a problem that we can solve in and of of ourselves. We cannot do this on our own, and we can't just start over. How does one clean up a mess? You evaluate the problem. Number two, you come up with a plan. Andy Stanley, in his book on grace, has said the sin that God hates and the people God loves are so intertwined that to destroy one is often to destroy the other. Jesus even has the parable where there's the wheat and the tares, the the wheat and the weeds. And he says somebody came out, the enemy came out, and he spread the the weed seed uh, along with the wheat seed. And the the wheat and the tares came up, and they were were tangled together. And the people said, let's go get the weeds out. And the Lord says, no, we'll we'll sort it out at the end. I'll send my angels. When they bring the harvest, they'll sort it out. You don't need to worry about it right now. We have the same problem with a lot of modern prescriptions. You ever take a medicine? for an illness that makes something else worse, where the side effects are worse than the original illness that you had. And I think the whole thing that the doctors have to do is they're trying to find out something that will keep you alive without killing you on the side. And usually at this huge expense, right? You go in, I, I was there, uh, I was picking up a prescription. Uh, we have a, a, a deal at Target. I, I hate the fact that the pharmacists now know me by first name. Hi, George, how are you doing? That's not a good thing. When you get to our age, all of a sudden you get into that. But there was this person in front of us, and they said, okay, with your copay, you see your insurance, and they were doing this, this stuff, and they said, okay, for this antibiotic, your antibiotic will be $8,200. And I said, wow, how much of that does the insurance pay? And the guy turned and he says, oh, no, that's after the insurance has paid their portion. Huge amount. 
And so God came up with a plan, and he saw that the, the cost was going to be exorbitant. He saw, he saw it was going to be too much. The ultimate solution requires a Savior who can eradicate the sin virus without killing the patient. Did you get that? The ultimate solution requires a Savior who can eradicate the sin virus without killing the people, the patient. And so the Lord sees that we can't afford it, and so he offers it free. It's called grace. So that's what God did for Abram. But I want you to see this for just a minute because I, I started thinking about this in a different way. Why Abram? Of all the people that God could have chosen, why him? In the ancient world, all of the different territories, all of the different people had their own gods. When you went to Egypt, there were ten major deities. When you go to other nations, they had all these little gods. And if you went to war and you won, your god was elevated. And if you went to war and you lost, your god, and you started to question whether your god was good. And so I think God saw that process, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a nation, and I'm going to be, they're going to be my nation, and people are going to see my grace and my power and my goodness and my love for this nation, and when they do, they're going to elevate their God uh, above and, uh, and beyond any other God. And God looked at all the nations, and all of them had cultic practices and, and, and horrible things, traditions in their life that were not good, and, and he decided he would not take any other nation, so he decided to choose someone and make his own nation. That would be like him coming and saying, okay, I'm going to have the nation of George. It sounds like a good name for a nation to me. And I'm going to choose this George guy, and all of his children are going to be a new nation. The problem was he chose someone 75 years old, and how many children did he have? None. Does that sound like a good plan to you? I'm having trouble with that plan when I'm looking at it. But in Genesis 12, that's exactly what God does. Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, we talked about this, your people, your father's household, and go to the land, I will show you. This is God's plan. Take a guy who's too old to have children, start a new nation, elevate God through this man and through his people, and make him the one so that people could see God's grace the Savior that would come through that nation. You evaluate the problem, you come up with a plan, and then you pick a place and begin. You see, if you have one of these huge messes like we did in Smithville, you have to choose a place. And I'll re I, I, I remember when I went with my father and with my brothers, Dad said, okay, George, you go to this office, and what I want you to do is I want you to look for any papers where you can still read any of the writing. If you can read the writing, you put them in this place. If you can't read the writing, we need to get it out here. And just pick this office, and this is your office. For three days, I spent all of my time in that office to the point that when all the sheetrock, the ceiling, the lights, everything was out of it, and we were down to the bare floor. Finally, I could leave that office. That was my place. He picked a place for me, and God picked a place. The place was at, uh, it was Abram. What did Abram do to deserve God's grace? Well, he questions God. He says, it's been 10 years. I still don't have that child. And God says, Abram, don't be afraid. I've got it handled. And Abram believed God. And God credited, counted it to him. He, he put it on his account. Righteousness. He lied twice about who his wife was when he was confronted about it. He, he tried to help God later by having a child with Hagar, his, his servant. That sounds like such a crazy thing for us. It's, they did that commonly in, in that era. If you couldn't have a child with your wife, then you could take someone else and have a child by that because you had to leave an heir. And so he tried to have this other, this child to help God, and the child is Ishmael. 
And after a decade of, decade of waiting, if you look back at chapter 14, Abram's called out because there's this skirmish and he, and he double-time marches. Have you ever marched before? Anybody ever done that? You ever double-timed? That's like trotting. That's like, you know, it's, it's going pretty fast. Double-time marched 90 miles. You're 85 years old and God says, I want you to take care of this skirmish. He goes 90 miles double-time. He does the battle and he comes back. How tired was this 85-year-old guy by the time he gets back? That makes me tired. I just spent a week with VBS. I can't imagine. I double time just a couple of hours a day, and I can't imagine doing 90 miles and coming back. It's crazy. And he's exhausted, and he's weary, and he's bruised, and God restates the promise. God picked a place, Abram, and Abram believed. Hebrews 11, 8, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, pick a place and begin. That's number three. You can write it down now. Pick a place and begin. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God picked this place, he picked this person, and he said, this is where I'm going to start. This is what I'm going to build it all off of. Because Abram deserved it? No. Because Abram had done anything? No. Because Abram had earned it? No. God picked him and began. How does one clean up a mess. Where should I begin? The second question is, where should I begin to clean up my mess? Genesis 15 gives us the hint because God does something that's just so bizarre that I, I, I love it. It's so bizarre. Uh, any teenagers here, they will especially love this because it's just kind of a, it's a crazy deal that God did. Go back to verse 6. It's the key of what we're looking at. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. In verse 8, it just said God that, that Abram believed, right? Verse 8. But Abraham said, O sovereign, all-powerful, the one who's in control of everything, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? The Lord said, not only are you going to have children, you're going to have land. And Abram's going, where? Where's my land? Where's my home? Where's my tent? Where can I put my, my feet down? Look at verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two. I want you to get a picture of that. Again, it's a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Ever been around when they slaughtered an animal? That's gory. I mean, it's nasty. I'm a city boy. I believe all meat should come at Safeway. That's where you should get all meat. I can't, I mean, we went to Boys Ranch, they had their own processing plant. That's a nice way of saying that's where they killed all the animals. And we would do a couple of beef and, and, you know, four or five pigs a week and a couple of hundred chickens a week for, I mean, it was a nasty place. Nobody went to processing plant unless you had to go there. Blood everywhere. So he takes these and he splits them and arranges the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Oh, not that much blood there. Verse 11, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So the vultures, the hawks, all the birds of prey are there. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. He was there on a Sunday morning. Abram fell into a deep sleep. Those of you who are awake got that. That's really good. Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. 
But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between those cut-up animals, those pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, folks, look at me for just a second. I'm not going to get into politics, but I need to say something. On that day, God said to Abram, your land is the land of Israel. And anyone who has ever said to Israel, that's not where you belong, has never been blessed of God. And if we as a nation turn our back, it's not that Israel has done everything right. It's not that they should have carte blanche to do what they want to do. But when it's all said and done, there is one land in all of the earth that's been given to one people, and that is this land to those people. And if we go against that, God will never bless that. Where should I begin to clean up my mess? Number one, trust what the Lord says. Just trust. Abram believed God. You say, I got it. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I believe. You, you already have it written on your t-shirt. You can say, I trusted the Lord as my Savior. 1964, when, when Gary was, and I teased him about 1927. He was not 16, year old, 16 years old. It was 1947. I'm so sorry, Gary, that I got that wrong. No, I'm just kidding. You, you might say, back in 60-something and 70-something, you know, three years ago, I trusted Christ as my Savior, and that's when my life changed. That's when everything was transformed. But see, Abram believed God 10 years before, and it says at this point he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Trust what the Lord says. A right standing with God comes by grace through faith. That is a principle throughout all of Scripture. A right standing with God comes by grace through faith. Genesis 15, 6 is quoted in Romans 4, 3. In Galatians 3, 6, it's quoted in James 2, 23. There are two important words that are used there, and, and the first one is, is that about believing and then righteousness. That's having the, the assurance, the faith, the trust in God and what God gives as a result. Abraham believed initially in the past, and he followed God when asked. He believed God in the present, and he believed God in the future. It's going to be 15 more years before he gets a son. God can be trusted. And I believe God chose Abram, a man who could not have children, with a wife who was too old to have children, and gave them a child when he is 100 and she's 90, so that, he, that no one could say this just happened to work out. God gives a 100-year-old man, a 90-year-old woman, a child and says to them, I have a plan. If God can do that, what do you think you have in your life that he cannot take care of? Psalm 37.5 says it this way, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Some of our youth went to Hume Lake. At Hume Lake they have this high ropes course. They have this, this course anywhere from 20 to 40 feet off of the ground. And, and some of it's you just, they wrap you in a harness and you walk off this cliff. That's always, they call it the screamer. I don't know why they do that. You walk off a 40-foot cliff, and you've got this harness, and you don't have anything in front of you. You just have to trust that harness and this 27-pound you know, girl that's, that's on the other end of the rope. 
They look at me, they ought to have somebody 200 pounds weighing down the other side. They have a teenager saying, okay, just step off the cliff. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. Or you're up on this rope and you get to this big tree and you say, well, how do I get it? Well, you just take this and you clip this over here and then you just leap from one cable to the other. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. The first step's the hard step, you think, except every step after that is also hard. It's a trust factor all the way through. Trust what the Lord says. Number two, recognize what the Lord does. Recognize what the Lord does. What the Lord was doing there for Abraham did not seem like something we've ever seen before. When we were uh, a, a little younger and living in Amarillo, we had a, a Japanese foreign exchange student by the name of Miyuki come and live with us. Loved Miyuki. She was too much fun. They told us she spoke great English, which means she could write great English. She just couldn't understand anything that we said, and we couldn't understand anything she said. Other than that, there was no communication problem whatsoever. And one night, Miyuki's sitting there, and she takes this piece of paper, and she starts doing something with her hands, and she's just, and it, she's just going really fast, and, it, and it's turning, it's, you know, and, and all of a sudden, she comes up, and there's this whole pheasant. And I said, Miyuki, what's that? And she says, origami. We knew that word. And every time we would turn around, if you gave Miyuki a piece, especially of colored paper, and she loved if it was colored on one side and not colored on the other, and she had all these intricate designs, and she would take that and she would begin to fold and to manipulate that and, and make all of these wonderful creations. She was very artistic, very gifted at that. And she would make the colors because of the different colors. She would work them into patterns. It was amazing. You had to understand, though, because if, if somebody didn't know, they would think that she was going crazy over there with her hands working so fast. Recognize what the Lord is doing. And in this ritual with the split animals, this was a way that they sealed an important agreement in the, in, in the Old Testament times. They would cut these animals, and both parties would walk through between these animals, and they would say, may we be as these dead animals, split, bloody, left for dead on the ground if we don't keep our part of the bargain. That's exactly what it was. It was a covenant. It was an agreement, except that it says that God caused a deep sleep to come over Abram. You remember the Sunday morning deal? Abram's asleep, and God, by himself, in the form of this fire, walks through, and it says he made a covenant. All of it's on God. None of it's on us. What do we have to do to win God's favor? Nothing. God says, I will make this covenant with you. I'll take care of all of that. It's called grace. Romans 4 is, Paul is writing back and, and remembering this. He says, the words, it was credited to him, speaking again of, of Abraham. They were written not for him, not for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The same covenant is still in effect. God said, I am still going to do the same thing. If you trust me, I will save you. Recognize what God has done. God's grace is powerful. And God let Abraham know. He says, just so you'll know, there's going to be 400 years where you're going to go, your, your, your descendants are going to go into this other land. You're going to be mistreated and enslaved, and then you're going to come out. And again, I believe there were 10 plagues because of the 10 deities of Egypt so that God could say, I'm greater than all of the Egyptian gods. Recognize what the Lord does. And the last one is accept what the Lord provides. Centuries before God gave the Ten Commandments, 
Hundreds of years before the Ten Commandments, God came to Abraham and he said, do you trust me? And Abraham said, I trust you. And God credited to him for righteousness. So accept what the Lord provides. The solution to cleaning up the mess of sin was not rule keeping. If it were, God would have given Abraham a list. Did you get that? The solution to coming into relationship with God is not rule keeping. The solution to cleaning up sin is not rule keeping. It's a relationship. He he initiated a relationship. And God also taught Abraham about sacrifice. Abraham had the son. His name was changed from Abram to Abraham. He, He changed his name so that he was the father of many peoples, many nations as Abraham. And in Genesis 22, later on, God says to Abraham one morning, he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Well, he had Ishmael. What do you mean your only son? Well, the only promised son, the one that I promised you. Take that son and take him with you, and you'll go back to Mount Moriah. You're going to go to this place, and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham has three days travel to do that. Never once does it say that Abraham said, but God, you know, this son, Isaac, the, the son Isaac is the one that you promised me. This son Isaac is the one that's supposed to be the promised son. Father, you, you, don't, you don't understand. I waited 25 years for this boy. Then he's a teenager now. He's been bar mitzvahed. He's, he's a man. Father, you can't really mean this. Abraham never says that. And finally they get there and they leave the servants and, and they take this wood and they take the fire because they didn't have Bic lighters and they didn't have matches and they didn't have you know, the, the little butane things that, that we have available today. And so he takes this fire and this wood and look at what it says. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham said, replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham's later known as a prophet. And I think one of the reasons he's known as a prophet is because of this sentence. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I think Abraham was thinking when we get up there, maybe there's going to be a lamb because God certainly is not going to allow me to have child sacrifice. In Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham believed that if God allowed Isaac to die, he could raise him from the dead. Abraham knew that God had promised him and he trusted God and he pulls a knife and he takes a knife and he's ready to stab it into the heart of his son to slit his his son's throat, whatever it is going to be. And as he raises the knife, somehow God stops him and says, wait, I got it. You trust me. You've accepted by grace and by faith everything that I've given you. And in the thicket there is a ram. But what Abraham's talking about is not that that animal that was there on Mount Moriah. Eventually, David would come into Israel and they would choose a place to put the, the temple. And tradition tells us that it was where Abraham went to sacrifice his son. Mount Moriah is where is the center of the Temple Mount where the sacrifices were sacrificed. But just outside that, on a little knob, on a little hill, is a place today known as Golgotha. And a cross was erected. And God himself provided the Lamb, his Son, to die for you and for me. This week as we were doing VBS, uh, Linda Isles was teaching the elementary story, and I'll close with this. 
She was telling this story about uh, the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah and this big contest that was going on, and it says that Elijah took this animal and he, and he killed it and he put it on the altar, and then they drenched it with 12 barrels of water, and, and then he prayed just 19 seconds and the fire fell, and, and one of the things they wanted me to do is to be the fireman, so I'm standing outside, which meant I had a siren to scare everybody. I mean, it was my kind of job. I was loving it, you know, walk in with a big siren, you know, bullhorn, stop it, stop what you're doing, no fires in the church, you know. I'm, I'm loving my part here. I'm having too much fun. But Linda decided, and part of the notes were, do something, put on that, you know, and they had a big tub, and they had rocks, and they built a little altar, and they put sticks on it, and then it said, don't kill an animal. That would not be good in most churches for you to do that. But take something the kids would really like to have. So she got big, huge chocolate bars, Hershey chocolate bars, and she unwrapped it, and she put it on top of the wood. And one of the kids says, what are you doing? And she says, well, it said to take something that you really love. She said, I really love chocolate. I'm going to sacrifice the chocolate. And she said, pour the water over the chocolate. And the kid said, I'm not going to pour the water over that chocolate. Let's eat that thing. Nobody will know. And another kid sitting in the back quietly said, I get it. I get it. God gave something that was so precious to him that he couldn't stand the thought of giving it up for me so I could come to him. That's worth it all. And that's the grace story. Would you bow your heads?